Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Our sermon podcast is available in most places that you can find podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe to always get the next podcast. Happy Easter! He is risen! And it is my hope that you would know new life in Christ this day, that you would have the redemption of Jesus in your life, and that you would have the expectation of heaven. Today we're going to talk about the great reversal of history. Philip Yancey writes in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, that Easter was the day that he learned about the word irreversible. He was a young boy and had a new kitten named Boots. Easter was the first day that Boots would be let outside, and after church service, the family came home and let the kitten out to see the world in spring. The neighbors also had their dog out, and before they knew it, the dog had run over and shook the kitten, ending its life. And thus comes the word, irreversible. Nothing could bring the little kitten back. So much of life is like that. Something happens that cannot be undone. The loss of a loved one, an illness, a mistake, a broken heart, a hurtful word, or an action. Irreversible. And that is why Easter is so important. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes the irreversible reversible. Damage can be undone. The unforgivable can be forgiven. New life can bloom out of hopelessness. But we have to let let resurrection do its work. As humans, we have a habit of feeling the finality of our circumstances. Sometimes even the best Christians can let the word irreversible win. Will you let Jesus into your life? He has come to fill hopelessness with hope and pointlessness with meaning. He has come to forgive sin and restore you to God. He has come to make the irreversible reversible. Our text today takes us to a woman named Mary Magdalene. She is the first person to see the risen Jesus, and she must decide, does she accept the great reversal? Does she choose to receive Jesus and the resurrection and have her life transformed? Let's go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now let's take a moment and set the scene here. Because earlier that first Easter morning, Mary and several other women had gone to the tomb where Jesus was laid to finish the burial process. The Gospel of John is choosing to highlight Mary in his account of the story. 
The burial process was complicated, full of ritual and practice that is unfamiliar to us. The burial of Jesus is further complicated by the fact that everything had to stop for Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was a day of rest when no work could be done, and this included the work of burial. Tombs in Jerusalem would hold the remains of many family members. Uh, Tombs were essentially a cave cut into the rock with a receiving chamber and many alcoves for the final resting place of each body. On Friday, Jesus was left in the burial preparation bench in the receiving room of the tomb chamber. No doubt the women thought they could return after the Sabbath, roll back the stone, and complete the burial, sliding Jesus' body into one of the tomb's burial niches. The Gospel of John tells us that it was so early that the morning is still dark. This speaks of the devotion of Mary Magdalene and the other women. They waited as long as was needed and not a moment more. They did not delay in getting back to Jesus, even if it was just to finish his burial. When Mary sees that Jesus is gone, she goes to Peter, the beloved disciple and the beloved disciple, to tell them that Jesus' body has been taken. In her grief, she misses the scene where Peter and the beloved disciple return to the tomb and believe in the resurrection. Now we cut back to Mary. And she's returned to the tomb and she's distraught. And that's what we read earlier today. We find that she's weeping at the tomb. And though she's alone, she would still desire to find the body of Jesus and somehow put things right. She stoops down. She looks in. And there she sees two angels. And I don't think she realizes they're angels yet. When the angels ask her what's wrong, she speaks to them that they meaning someone has taken the Lord. The implication is that the temple officials are still not happy with just the death of Jesus, that they want to disgrace the body. Somehow they've robbed the tomb. Mary's level of devotion is high, and we need to know a little bit more about this woman. So who is this Mary? Well, the name Mary Magdalene refers to Mary, who came from the Galilean village of Magdala. It's located north of Tiberias on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. She appears in the Gospel of John for the first time at the cross, which is maybe unusual here, but she only appears in John at the, at the foot of the cross in John chapter 19, verse 25. But being at the foot of the cross is a bold and dangerous move. You don't want to be seen at the foot of a cross. Crucifixion was meant to deter the followers of a radical person. Being at the cross jeopardized her own life. She could have been arrested, too. Now, Mary is named earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. She's named among a list of women who followed Jesus. And Luke chapter chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, says this, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, uh, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, uh, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support support him out of their own means. So we're told that Jesus expelled seven demons from Mary and that she was part of a group of ladies who supported Jesus' ministry financially. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 55 and 56, tell us this. Many women were there, meaning at the cross, watching from a distance this time. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs, and among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. 
wherever we find a list of women who followed Jesus in the Gospels, and there are many lists of them, Mary Magdalene is almost always first in the list. Sometimes she's not, but almost always she is. And this tells us that there's something important about her. She's special, and so she's usually listed first. But really, this is about all we know about Mary. Yet there's something special about her. She has an intense character. She was the first witness to the risen Jesus. And she has two points in the story where she must make a decision. The first one is this. Mary must face the idea of irreversible twice. Her response to Jesus hangs in the balance each time. The first time that she must face the idea of irreversible to reversible, Mary is overcome with grief. She speaks to the angels not even noticing who they are. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. She's one of the very few figures in the Bible who does not comprehend the holiness, the righteousness of the angels that she's speaking to. Most of the time when a person in the Bible sees an angel, they fall down as though dead and are filled with fear. Not Mary. She's full of grief and frustration and despair. And she doesn't even notice that they're angels. She just says, they've taken my Lord away. Then Jesus appears and speaks to Mary. But in her grief, she can't see him. She just thinks he's the gardener. Now, Mary oddly doesn't recognize Jesus. And this has puzzled scholars and preachers since the moment it happened. Did Jesus do something to prevent Mary from seeing him? Or perhaps maybe she was so focused on finding the dead body of Jesus that she couldn't even believe the living one was standing in front of her. William Barclay proposes that Mary was so focused on the deceased Jesus that through her tears she could not see. Even though she was looking at Jesus, her grief filled her eyes with so many tears she couldn't recognize Jesus. I think we are certainly capable of this sort of blindness. We get so focused on a problem, a struggle, a sorrow, or a frustration, whatever it is, we become obsessed that we become blind to what Jesus is actually doing. We can become so certain that our mistakes have written our future, but this is not the case. We fail to see the risen Jesus right next to us, walking with us in life. This morning, I want to challenge you and ask you, have you been so focused on a problem that you failed to look to Jesus for the solution? Take your blinders off. God has a habit of working in ways that we are not expecting. The second moment, which is when Mary must see the reversible going into something new. Now that Mary has seen and recognizes Jesus, she has a second battle with the irreversible. Or perhaps this is not quite right to say irreversible. She wants to reverse things too far and and assumes that Jesus is simply back. Things can go back to how they were, but Jesus is doing something new. Mary encounters the risen Christ and the verbal exchange is pretty brief. Mary does not recognize him until he speaks her name, Mary, and she speaks one word back, Rabboni, Master. You get the impression of close friends connecting again. Then Jesus speaks these odd words in verse 17, and they are quite strange. He doesn't say, I'm glad to see you, and he doesn't tell her to cheer up, everything's going to be okay. Jesus says, do not hang on to me, for I have not yet gone to the Father in heaven. 
There is a feeling that Mary is celebrating that Jesus is back and this is good. But the celebration may be that she would hang on to things as they used to be. And I have a feeling her initial reaction is, it's another miracle. It's as though the cross never happened. And when we pray for a loved one who is struggling, we want something similar. We want them back as though they were never sick in the first place. We want, we want to undo a sin we have committed or a harsh word that we spoke. We want things to go back as though it never happened. But that's not how Jesus works. He has plans to do something new in you. Yes, he reverses the irreversible, but he does it in a new way. Give Jesus permission to forge something new out of your hurts, your regrets, and mistakes. Think of it this way. The resurrection does not erase the cross. The resurrection and the cross go necessarily hand in hand. They must be combined together to accomplish God's new thing. The cross satisfies sin, and the resurrection is the first proof that everything is different now. Irreversible has a broken, is a broken word now. Now Jesus wants to do something new. It would do Mary no good to hang on and go backwards. It does us no good either. Let Jesus do something new in you. So Mary's at a critical point of decision. God is going to do something new with the resurrection, and she does not have to she does not get to have Jesus back the same way. She has to let go so that God can continue to do this new thing. And this Easter there are people here, people listening, that need to go to let go of something. Let me say that again. This Easter, there are people listening here that need to let go of something, an old way of thinking, an old dream, something we've not forgiven, a sin, a hurt from the past. We need to let go of that old life so that God can begin to work the resurrection in us and do something new. Jesus says, do not hang on to me because I have something new to do and you can get in the way if you're not careful. Here are the different ways that we can hang on to Jesus and keep him from working new things into our lives. And it goes like this. We can set our minds on earthly things instead of the things of above. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 says this. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Mary had to decide if following Jesus was about his earthly ministry in Israel or if it was a cosmic plan for the restoring of humanity and the creation to God. We can have a vision that is too small, too low, if you will. You might think of it as focusing on earthly versus spiritual. You might think of it as wearing blinders. But our vision becomes just too small. More dangerously, our hungers become too small. We find we hunger more and more for earthly stuff than to taste heaven. Resolve to hunger for the holiness of God. Another way that we can hang on to Jesus is we can desire preservation. We want to keep things the same. We want to maintain the good old days. It's never, and it's never possible to maintain the thing, way things were. It's a story about the home of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, a noted poet. It's open to the public in Dayton, Ohio. When Dunbar died, his mother left his room exactly as it was on the day of his death. At the desk of this brilliant man was his final poem, handwritten on a pad of paper. After his mother mother died, his friends discovered that Paul Lawrence Dunbar's last poem 
had been sitting there. They thought it had been lost forever. Because his mother had made his room into a shrine and not moved anything, the sun shined on that pad of paper for year after year until the ink was basically rendered invisible, washed away by the light. The poem was gone. If we stay in mourning, we, mo we lose so much of life. I was reading a Kerry Neuhoff blog post earlier this week where he mentioned the Beloit College Mindset List. It comes out every year and often makes the news. The list is designed to get college faculty and others into the headspace of, entry, of the entry class of mostly 18-year-olds. Essentially, it's a tutorial on how much the world has changed since the people who would be teaching that class were in college themselves. Here are a few random snippets from the class of 2019. For them, The Lion King has always been on Broadway, never in theaters. They have never licked a postage stamp. Princess Diana, the notorious B.I.G., Jacques Cousteau, and Mother Teresa have never been alive during their lifetime. For them, Hong Kong has always been under Chinese rule. Hybrid automobiles have always been mass-produced. And just so you know, this was for the class that graduated in 2019. We're a few years ahead of that now. Mary had to decide if she was going to follow Jesus into something new or try to live in the memory of the old. We cannot keep things the way they used to be. We need to be willing to receive what new thing God is doing. We can also be paralyzed by fear. Another reason we want to hang on to things the way things used to be is fear. Fear of what things could become. Could things get worse? What if God asks me to become something I never planned on becoming? What if I'm asked to do something that I cannot do? Could change? Could a change bring about something that is better than now? Or, or maybe things are as good as they could ever get? Fear can halt us in our tracks. There's a story of an old farmer sitting on the steps of a tumble-down shack, and he was approached by a stranger who stopped for a drink of water, and the stranger asks, Well, how's your wheat coming along? This is a farmer says, I didn't plant any. Really? I thought this was a good country for wheat. And the farmer says, I was afraid it rained too much. Well, how about your corn crop? I don't have a corn crop. Afraid of the corn blight. And the stranger was confused, but was persevering and said, Well, then perhaps you planted potatoes. I didn't plant any potatoes either. I was afraid of the potato bugs. For Pete's sake, what did you plant? And the farmer said, Nothing. I just played it safe. And he didn't have any crops to harvest that year. Proverbs 29.25 says this, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Mary had to decide if she was going to let fear prevent her from following Jesus. And I guarantee you, she had many moments where she had to overcome fear in her life. This was just one of them, when she had to come over the fear of what will happen if I let go of Jesus and let him go back to the Father in heaven. Fear can keep us from letting God work a new thing in our life. So, more than anything else, Mary was faced with a decision. How will she respond to the risen Jesus? Will she believe that he's risen? Will she believe that this means something new is happening instead of going back to the old ways? And we'll need to be willing to release the past so that God can start working something new in us, the resurrection in us. Some of you listening need to believe in Jesus and call him your Lord for the first time. 
Some of us who've been following Jesus for a while have been hanging on to Jesus. We're holding on to our dream of who Jesus is and what he wants for our lives, and we're unwilling to let him do something new. Will you give him permission to do something new in your life today? Will you surrender your old plans to him? I want to close with a poem by Philip Brooks. I think it captures the power of King Jesus well this Easter day. Tomb, thou shalt not hold him longer. Death is strong, but life is stronger. Stronger than the dark, the light. Stronger than the wrong, the right. Faith and hope triumphant say, Christ will rise on Easter day. Let us pray. Almighty God, who through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, overcame death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life, grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection may by your life-giving Spirit be delivered from sin and raised from death through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. He is risen. Now go with Jesus.